Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we have a treat for you today. Indeed. A, a dive into the ancient and sacred. Before we make that dive, we have to, of course, say hello to our Amazonian warrior, Sean <laughs> Samold. I was, I, I was gritting my teeth to see what you were going to call me this time. Uh- <laughs> Only good things, only good things. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is Don Sam Alden. And we indeed, as Sean mentioned, do have a treat. We have not only do we have uh, the fabulous Vicki Noble back again, but we also have the fabulous Miriam Robbins Dexter back again. Welcome both. <laughs> good to have you here, Vicki. Would you like to introduce our special guest for today? Love to. Miriam Miriam and I go way back. Way back. <laughs> and we, we are, uh, you know, colleagues and uh, co-madres and comrades in the whole work of Maria Gimbutas. Miriam got her PhD at UCLA under the guidance of uh, Maria Gimbutas. So she, she really has uh, a very old connection to our mentor and our beloved Maria. Miriam's an Indo-Europeanist, so she, if you listen to the first podcast we did, the earlier podcast with Miriam, you, you already know this. She's an expert in that area. And one of the things that caused me to want to have a more personal uh, and scholarly relationship with Miriam was the uh, a little bit of a, a sort of obscure book that people probably don't know about, that I found so valuable called The Kurgan Culture and the Indo-Europeanization of Europe. It's a work of essays by Maria Gimbutas on the, her Kurgan theory. And we've talked about that before, and we, we may have talked about this book, but Miriam was one of the editors who put this book together. And so um, it's just, it's a wonderful piece of her work. But Whence the Goddesses, a source book, which I also loved and found very valuable and keep on my shelf handy. And then she, um, she wrote The Living Goddesses. So The Living Goddesses, which we'll talk about today because Sean's on it, is a book that Maria had started and was unable to finish because of her death in 1994. And she asked Miriam to please finish it, which Miriam did, edited and completed the book, and uh, it's a treasure. And then there's a wonderful uh, book called Sacred Display that Miriam did with uh, an archaeologist, Victor Mayer. The Sacred Display is what some of us know as uh, Sheelina gigs and images like that, but Miriam and Victor did a worldwide investigation <laughs> of display figures, female display figures. And that's also a really important uh, text for any researchers in, uh, in feminist historical work. 
what else do I want to say? She, Miriam is my beloved colleague. We co-edited together the book Foremothers of the Women's Spirituality Movement in uh, 2015. And I'm delighted to be introducing her, to be in uh, cahoots with her on this podcast. Thank Vicki, that might be the most beautiful introduction I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> we want to know everything today, Miriam. I'll let yeah, you. Where, where, where would you like to lead us? Where, where, where should we start? Yes. Where should we go? Because there's so many, because Vicki brought up some great things. The Sheila Nagig, we did a great episode on that. Uh, With uh, Star Goody. Star Goody, thank you. Miriam also knows, I believe. Yes, actually, Star and I wrote a couple of articles together on the Sheilas. Nice. Yeah, she's a very close friend. But so, today, mm-hmm. sorry, Sean. <laughs> no, she's today, saying something we could talk about yeah. that or, or the sacred script, which I well, yeah. assume we're going to guide to that. We, we, called, we called Miriam to our podcast again this time to talk about the sacred script. And um, this is something that I know very little about. So I am very interested in hearing all about it. Can I just insert here that it's a a full moon in Sagittarius today. And Sagittarius is the sign of knowledge. Um, Oh, perfect. Thank you. Isn't that great? We're we're right on. Vicky's my astrologer. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, then lay some knowledge on us. So when we say sacred script, what exactly are we talking about? Okay, working into sacred script, I'm also going to have to talk about sacred display because that's part of it. Yes, and the M and the V, all about your, your research. Exactly. So first of all, the sacred script is also called the Danube script or the the, um, old European script. Maria coined the the term old European and colleagues in Eastern Europe also call it the Danube script. And there are a couple of people in Italy and Romania, Marco Merlini and Gheorghe Lazarovic, who have wonderful databases of all the characters in the Danube script. So there are these wonderful databases of all the characters. I have analyzed two of them and spoken and written about what I think the core meaning underneath the two characters is. And I think that this incredible script offers the earliest evidence of a place where archaeology, language, and myth, and religion intersect. These fields are all very important to me because I think they're so interconnected. I theorize, along with a lot of others, that the Daniel script was used for religious purposes and not economic. We see uh, the early scripts in Mesopotamia obviously put on goods that are being shipped, and obviously in Mesopotamia, the the use of the script was economic. That's absolutely not so uh, in the Danube script, and I'll explain why. So um, I connect myth with religion. Myth is usually a story which has a deity or many deities in the characters. What may be myth or made-up stories to one person may be religion, spiritual truth to another. And I think there is religion that underlines these characters, the V and the M. I just have a quick question. Could you, just for our listeners, let us know what time period we're talking about with the sacred script. 
Okay. The time period is somewhere between 5,000 and 4,500 BCE, the Neolithic, and it goes down. There are still characters being written probably until the old Europeans um, become, well, as Vicky would tell us, refugees after the Indo-Europeans come. One thing I love about your research into the V and the M, especially the V, is the V is the vulva, and images of the vulva go back to the beginning of time. I mean, the beginning of art, I guess you could say. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about today. Good. Exactly so. So first, um, before I go into that, because I'm going to sort of talk, if I may, chronologically. Great. Beginning, as Vicky says, in the earliest ordination period, about 40,000 BCE, I think that the signs of the V and the M are interconnected and interrelated. And the M can also, if you, if it's put upside down, it looks like a W or a VV. So they're really the same character used in different ways. And there are a lot of female figurines, uh, what I call fem female display figures, that are in this sacred dance that I'll talk about with their arms up in a W or VV position and their legs down in an M position. And I think this is sacred and shamanic. Mm, that's lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so the V and the, the M in the Danube script have a lot of what are called diacritics. These are different markings that distinguish one form from another. When there are diacritics already in a written language, that language is not new. It's already sophisticated. If you have characters that are representing a lot of different words... Uh, this this is very sophisticated writing. Can you say more about that, Miriam? That's something that really only linguists know about. Exactly. Can we also do one thing just even before that, just for the listener? Yeah. So when you're talking about M and V, you're talking about literally the what we would look at as it looks like the letter M and the letter V. Yes. And these are appearing next to figures. These are appearing on pottery. On figurines and pottery, and um, sometimes the writing on a figurine, say, will be one character, and, and it, that'll often be a V. So you can have a sentence of one character. This is not an alphabetic language, obviously. What, oh, perfect. That leads into Vicky's question. Thank you. Well, yeah, because you say, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, for, for non-linguists, nothing about this is obvious. So. Okay, probably the simplest writing was in the Upper Paleolithic, right? Uh, you've read Marshak, for example, Vicky. Um, all these markings on mammoth bones and so and so forth are more simple characters probably not diacritics. And again, okay, diacritics in French, you have a circumflex, a grave accent, and an acute accent, right? Those are three different diacritics over a, a vowel. Other languages have diacritics on consonants as well. If there are diacritics, it means that this has been worked on for a long time. This is, this is really old, and I don't know how old. Uh -huh. Okay, so just 
you're now talking about that you're seeing in this these scripts, these diacritics, which indicate to you that these are things that are what we think of as accents or changing the way something is is said or pronounced. And you're seeing it, and that's indicating to you this has an old lineage. Is that correct? Yes, okay. it has an old lineage because it's more complex than just simple characters, right? Uh-huh. If there's more to a character, it's more complex. So these diacritics can be horizontal lines, they can be vertical lines, they can, just um, a lot of different diacritics. If you, if anybody uh, cares at some point to, to look at the lists of characters in the Danube script, which can be found online, there are, um, there are a lot of diacritics. Are there any issues in your mind as to whether this constitutes an early use of language? Because... Uh... And I, I, having read what you've read, I, I know the answer, but I'm asking for the context because you, in, in the Living Goddess, in the Living Goddesses, it's pointed out that scholars often say the earliest writing they go to Babylon or Egypt. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, could you say a little bit about that? Oh, I, absolutely. This is the earliest, in, I can't say written, engraved form of writing in the world. Other than, I mean, in the Upper Paleolithic, there are characters on mammoth bones, but in the Danube script in the Neolithic, it seems, I don't know, more organized and more, much more sophisticated. But this is the earliest writing. The Mesopotamian definitely isn't. And the people who write that have just not ever heard of the Danube script. There you go. Because they, once they would look at the Danube script, they'd say, oh, this is earlier. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that it's earlier. Yeah. And just to emphasize again for our listeners that this is not an alphabet. It's a script. And how are those two things different? Well, for one thing, I'm really formulating pre-theories here because it's so hard to know because we've never cracked the code. But I think, for example, that the, the at the core of meaning of the V, no matter what it's transitioned into for this script, the core of the V is the pubic tri- the female pubic triangle. And that's really what I want to discuss here because it's so sacred to me. Fabulous. So yeah, it's a, it is um, in many ways a representation of a physical thing? Yeah, I think it's a representation of the vulva. There you go. And okay. a kind of glyph of the great goddess or whatever. Exactly. Sometimes the vulva in figurines and, and so forth is magical and enlarged. And even the V um, that I'll talk about in uh, the Upper Paleolithic is is very large. Um, these were excavated by the thousands from um, Neolithic and Chalcolithic sites. So from maybe 8,000 BCE on, pre-Neolithic through Chalcolithic, at least 3,000, and actually um, into the Classical Age and beyond, and throughout Eurasia, um, meaning through, throughout Europe, Anatolia, and um, the Far East. So by the time the Danube script was being formulated, these female figurines from everywhere with these huge pubic triangles were being crafted throughout Southeast Europe and all over. And so the the peoples of the Danube civilizations, which were in Bulgaria, Serbia, um, 
Romania and northern Greece, they were very familiar with these figurines before these characters of the script even came into being. Oh. I have a, um, a quote from Pupil Jayakar, who um, Vicky introduced me to some years ago. She said, the goddess was the seed of the universe in the form of a triangle. Mm. And who is that quote from? Her, her name, she's um, East Indian, and her name is Pupul, and her last name Jayakar, J-A-Y-A-K-A-R. And is she, uh, just so, just for context for the listener, is she a writer of some note? or? Yeah, her book was The Earth Mother. Fabulous. The Earth Mother. Uh, she, she is so deeply wise. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm going to talk uh, about the M for a minute and then uh, show uh, talk about where the V shows up on uh, figurines and pottery and so forth. So I believe that the M of the Danube script is the position taken by the legs in a ritual dance. I think the M was really important in the old European civilization because House models from all over Eastern, the, the early Eastern European cultures, house models were often in M shapes. The Bulgarian archaeologist Vasil Nikolov wrote about this. He studied these, these house models, and he says that the frontal and back openings of the house models are both stylized pubic triangles and the entrances of the shelter, and the lateral openings, which are often M's, can be the windows. Wow. Sorry, Mary. You, when you say house models, I'm, I'm sorry, just so I understand and forgive me. Are you literally talking about figurines that are of We're houses? We're talking about a use of pottery and it's in between a pot and a figurine mm -hmm. because these usually have human-like characteristics, but they're still houses. Well, doesn't Maria name them as temple models? Yes, they're, they're sacred models of houses. So they're probably temples, exactly. And she, she pointed out pretty often that the temples, in her opinion, were simply larger houses made in the same way, but where the pottery was made and so on. I think so, because you don't see a great distinction. You don't see these, you know, large gathering places in the early Neolithic. Uh -huh. So so much was done in the home. So much was domestic. I mean, that's where figurines are found, right? They're found everywhere. Huh. They're found in, you know, the, the female figure between two felines in Anatolia or Turkey. Um, it was found in a grain bin, you know, where, where the, which they would take the grain to make the communal bread. Yes. <laughs> Everything was, things were communal then. And still are in the festivals in the mountains of Italy to this day, where the women communally bake the bread the night before the festival. That means nobody's isolated, right? Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. So both Vicky, Vicky and Miriam, again, so uh, these are figurines, but are you saying uh, to, for both of you that the houses and temples that they actually built and actually lived in were shaped like this as well? Is that correct or am I misunderstanding? No. We're saying that probably the, the temples were not large, like you would expect a temple to be part of the houses. And these house models, um, these temple models were large enough, but not 
life-size by any means, um, temple models that were anthropomorphic, that had human characteristics as well as I mean, four walls and windows and so forth. No, I just meant would, would their actual houses have been built? How would, what would they have looked like? But they're not, it's not related. We don't know, okay. unfortunately, because, um, you know, what we find are some, we excavate remnants of, of buildings and you'll see a burnt layer in, in one part of, of a home, uh, which you know would have been the hearth. For example, but you can't. You probably uh, at least their artifacts were painted. We did. We still have artifacts that are painted that are being excavated. But we, uh, Maria, thought that the homes would have been brightly colored, but I'm not positive because I don't have enough information on that. Okay, no, no worries. So we were talking about again the the you were talking about the M and the sacred script and I will continue on the on the M because I'm so fascinated with it. Okay, so I think that the M of, of the sacred script is the underpinning of a particular type or the core of a particular type of female figure, which I have called display figures. These display figures have been represented from the earliest Upper Paleolithic, about forty thousand BCE. Up to the modern era, these figures um, either crouch to display their genitals or they engage in a ritual, what I think is a dance rather than a stance. I think it's mobile. Uh, Maria Gambudis associated the M with birthing, and I quote, the frog goddess is life regenerator, and I'll talk about the frog in a minute. So in the dance position, and I'm just going to call it dance, one or both arms are raised and the legs either mirror the arms. So you have an M in the legs and then the arms look like a VV or a W. Or um, legs will be bent at the knees with one leg up and one leg down. And if that isn't a shamanic position, I don't know. The dance probably is a ritual and therefore a religious dance. And this bent knee or knee laufen position is characteristic of many female figures. And my favorite is the Medusa, the pediment from the Artemis Temple in Corfu, yes. in the Corfu Museum. So gorgeous. Uh, the Kiltine and Shilindigig also takes this position. Many, many do. So they can be crouching or standing on one leg. Often the female figure is nude and displaying this large magical vulva. Miriam, is it? Yeah. You know, the dakini is uh, always... Absolutely. Yeah, with the bent knee. Do you think there is, could there be a connection? Oh, yeah. You know um, that all of this goes right into the Indic modern era. Uh-huh. I mean, this is what we're working on, right? Yeah. Absolutely the Dakinis. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes flying, huh? <laughs> please, please say more about that because, Vicki, this has come up and it's a fascinating uh, area where this connection that you draw, these, you know, this, these, these connections across time and space that we don't often think about and we certainly don't think about in the context of the old Europe matriarchies. So yeah. if either of you want to... I would just say, I, I have to go look at those figures again, but, um, you know, I did in my Double Goddess book, I did a lot of research connecting the old European culture and uh, millennia of years past, and then the Dakini in Tibet. 
and and the images of the bent knee burials uh, in that uh, Janine Davis Kimball presented. So I put all that together in a way that I think works. But now I'm thinking I got to go back and look at the Medusa of Corfu again and see if she isn't really carrying that same truth. I mean, it just makes sense. I just don't think I, I, I don't think I knew that. Well, I think somewhere, Vicki, you did know it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know a lot. <laughs> and just, uh, Vicki, just for the listener, what is the Tibetan Dakini? Well, the Tibetan Dakini is a wonderful female icon of freedom. You know, there are lots of fairy goddesses in the old European and in the even uh, contemporary European mythology and imagery. But the Dakini in Tibet and a little bit in India, just in, in the East, she's, a, she's an image of, of female freedom. She's free. She's playful. She's not, she's untamed. These are the kinds yes. of language that they use to describe her. You know, she, she disrupts the train of thought, you know, she disrupts the current normal kind of consciousness so that for a minute you're free. And uh, that's one of her main uh, characteristics. And she is quite often, like at least half the time, shown in a bent knee posture. Mm-hmm. And so those th- that's the basic uh, imagistic connection that I started with. And that's so important. I'm just going to cut in here for a second. Miriam, could you give us a quick definition of what is sacred display? Gladly, Don. Thank you. Okay, so female display figures uh, display their genitals, and sometimes, uh, especially early, early, like in the earliest Upper Paleolithic, they're just represented by a V. The V is the representation of the whole sacred feminine. So they represent the beneficent but also the ferocious aspects of the divine feminine they um they're apotropaic meaning they ward off evil they um they protect one against the enemy uh, they're protective for their people in say in the book sacred display we have accounts of women for example standing on at the entrance of like on a battlement, on an entrance to their town, enemies are coming. The women lift their skirts and the enemy runs away. I'm just picturing putting a bumper sticker on my car that says, my vulva protects against the enemy. Yes, I really like that. I really, I really love it. <laughs> so um, in story after story after story, a male figure, especially in the historic age, and therefore in the patriarchal age, they may rape women, but if they're presented with, like the Greek Bellerophon or the Irish Cuculin, if they're presented with a lot of women with their skirts raised, they run away and hide their heads. They can't handle that much female energy. And may I insert something? Yeah. I am. This is. I'm flashing on a wonderful essay I read, a paper I read uh, a decade ago, at least. Probably it was 20 years ago about African women. Yes. Using the 
the using the lifting of the skirts or the display as a, as an aggressive action. That's how the that's how the person wrote about it in the article, and I think that's what you're talking about. It's all it is what I'm talking about exactly. It's the ashe, and it's done. Um, you you turned me on to the article, and it's done by women past menopause, and they're feared because they have all this stored up power that isn't um, released through menstruation. So they have all this power. And if they lift their skirts, and, and this can be within their culture if they're angry with someone, this is the most serious curse. Yes. So then that links to the Nigerian women who, uh, for a while, were able to actually put a stop to shell oil uh, in their culture because of uh, lifting their skirts uh, or threatening to. <laughs> yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so so these people, these figures are protecting, figures and real women are protecting their people. These figures both bring fertility and they bring good fortune. A great example of this is the Lajagauri figures. They're both Hindu and Buddhist. They raise their legs in a very acrobatic position. I'm not sure it's possible to do um, on on straight up along the sides of their bodies, completely displaying their their pubic triangles. If a temple doesn't have a Lajagauri in it, it's thought not to be propitious. These because it's not it's thought not to have good fortune so those are the lajagauris so the numinous sacred female genitals protect the boundaries of sacred space and this is again from the earliest upper paleolithic in europe the ignatian into the modern era well close to the modern era that's wonderful so all of this meaning all of this sort of story and symbolism would be understood and is in a sense condensed down into this script of the M. That's what I think. That's what I think. The V and the M. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know it. So um, the earliest V that we have that I, that I know of is in um, Chauvet Cave in France, and it dated to about 40,000 BCE, and it was carved on a limestone outcropping on the ceiling of the furthermost gallery of Chauvet Cave, because it has many galleries, and this is called the Salle du Fond. So it's the, the area at the very farthest of, of the cave. And the Holy of Holies. Nice. Exactly. It is the Holy of Holies. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could go. The female figure consists of only a, lo- a huge magical pubic triangle and legs. And she was carved before anything else. So there's a, a bison that looks like it's intersecting with her, but it was painted later. This isn't sacred sex. It's sacred female display. Yes, so important. And she's um, in an area 
in which lion paintings are found, the lion gallery. She guards the the entrance to the lion gallery. And there are four more of these sacred Vs in Chauvet Cave, each one guarding the entrance to a lion gallery. And I think that there's this tremendous connection between sacred display and felines all the way from 40,000 BCE into modern India. You think of Kali, for example, um, uh, Durga, with with their felines. So um, starting with the Neolithic, then we start finding the M as well as the V. And uh, we find figures. Actually, there are some somewhat pre-Neolithic. For example, there's a dancing figure from Poland that dates to the ninth millennium BCE. And so this is somewhat pre-Neolithic. Wow. Yeah. So these these are very these are very old. Well also, I forget how old the one is at uh, Lipinski Veer. I guess it's more like seventh millennium. It's a bit about seven thousand sixty eight hundred. So I thought Ooh. I would begin oh. with Gobekli Tepe because this figure dates to at least eight thousand, if not a little bit earlier. Oh yeah, good. Uh, Mary, can I just get uh, just quick uh, question yeah. just to interject? So, this this sort of direction and, and and legacy that you're tracing is and looking at what was in the living goddesses as well. So, is the idea that script as we understand it? I don't want to say alphabet or language, but script as we understand it is comes from the need to explain divine forces or display divine forces. Is that kind of the idea in terms of looking at these sacred languages and sacred script that it is, it's a product of this kind of religious symbolism? Yeah, it's a product of the communication, I think, of religious symbolism. Um, some time ago, Vicki and Laura Amazoni and I were looking at combs and the uterus, remember? And we found that the same word in Greek um, means both comb and uterus. And there's a figure from old Europe that has a comb symbol right at, right below the, the navel. So these symbols go back so far. That is fascinating. Yes, and it's, it's so important because most, most academics only know, if they know anything at all about any of this, they only know about the Sheila Nagigs from the medieval period. Yeah. You know, and all of these figures that Miriam has uh, unearthed, uh, or that's not quite right, not archaeological. That's because I'm not a spade archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> What's the right word, you know? Identified or? Identified is good, yeah. It's so important. It's such a, a core piece of the goddess tradition and the actuality, the, the substance of the goddess tradition. Yeah. I feel like I'm in sacred space right now. Yeah. <laughs> we try. We try. So tell us about... Yeah, Gobekli Tepe is where yes. we left off. Okay, so Gobekli Tepe is in the southeast Anatolian area, um, six miles from Syria. Um, and a female display figure has been found in level two of, of that site, Gobekli Tepe. And she was excavated by Klaus Schmidt when he was alive. Um, this dates to certainly no later than 8,000 BCE. This figure is crouching 
Her arms and legs are bent in an M position, and probably she's in a magical dance. One arm is up and one arm is down, so this is shamanic. Her breasts are on either side of her torso, as we find in other Neolithic shamanic female figures depicted in rock carvings. There's something in her vagina. Um, um, Klaus Schmidt thought that she was somehow having sex, but there's no male figure there. There's something in her vagina. Although she doesn't appear to be pregnant, she may be giving birth, and she may be represent a divine birth giver such as the later Kali who gives birth to the universe. Uh-huh. And the Australian first woman, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so that may very well be it. Now, she was carved on a stone slab on a shelf or a bench in the Lion Pillar building. So here we again have a dancing display figure with lions. And I don't know if the lions are maybe adding to the power of the sacred feminine mm -hmm. because throughout um throughout prehistory and history uh, we find the great goddess associated with lions and tigers and and other felines yeah i think of the seated woman at chateauhoyuk that is seated with two leopards they think on either side yes exactly i think they're probably leopards and in in anatolia both chateauhoyuk and um Hajalar had these figures with leopard skin figures and so forth. So that was important, I think. Holding leopard babies. Yes, exactly. exactly. Wow. You've pointed this connection a, a few times, Miriam, the, the feline and the sacred the sacred display. Is there a, Are there any theories about why that particular connection was made? Or is it just because those animals were particular... Or those individual animals just happened to be felines that were powerful? But there were there were other ones, you know. I have a couple theories which I which I've written about, and one is that the feline was considered one of the most powerful animals of, of prehistory and early, and early antiquity. So, you find, for example, an, an image of the great uh, goddess, the Sumerian goddess Inanna, with her foot on a lion. I don't think it means she's conquering the lion. I think she means that 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 lion's strength is part of her. Yes, it's like an alter ego. Yeah, exactly. And some metamorphosis may be taking place, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. Like in the Indus Valley. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was just wondering why it was uh, felines in particular, if there was any theory. Because obviously there are, you know, powerful, uh, we see bison and, and wolves and things of that sort, but they, they're, not as, they're not as associated. The other thing is, because I think that a good part of Apotropea is protection, um, I think that, that the, the feline may have been seen as protective of the space. And you can think of Bastet and, and Sekhmet. Um, Bastet protecting the home, Sekhmet in Egypt, um, sort of violently uh, protecting, well, just being violent and, and powerful and she has to be protecting the, the sort of larger law of the land, right? Exactly. Yeah, she is the ma'at of the land, the order. The, the ma'at, yes. Yeah, the law. And also the female lions are the ones who hunt. Um, and they protect their young. Yeah. Right, they're just the perfect mothers. <laughs> 
Well, they are. They oh. are. They do it all. Yeah. yeah. They do it all. <laughs> well put that they hunt, Vicki. Okay, so I can go on to Lipinski Veer. Yes. And again, I, I'm, I'm just speaking chronologically. So the Lipinski Veer is Mesolithic. And recently I read about how um, DNA of both Neanderthal and Cro-Mignon was found in bones, or it had to have been bones, excavated in Lipetsky Veer. Oh. So, right. So this is Mesolithic, but it's um, continuing a lot of traditions. It's it's sort of it's right in the middle. So this dates to, as Vicky said, about seven thousand, maybe sixty eight hundred BCE, where there are several female fish sculptures, and one in particular is crouching and displaying her gen her genitals, and her arms reach down just like a shilidigig, to indicate a deeply incised vulva. And by her hands, one can see two tiny breasts. And I don't know if the breasts are representing those of an adolescent girl or if it's just that um, in the semantics of the, of the figurine, if you have a giant pubic V, you don't need big breasts because you already know it's been designated a female. And I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And just to bring it to the personal level for the listeners, when Miriam and I were together uh, at a field trip, you might say, to Lipinski Veer with Joan Marler and the archaeomythology people, mm -hmm. um, we together had uh, a kind of epiphany when we looked at the so-called boulder goddess or fish goddess that we had exactly. each of us had seen many times in books, but looking at it in the place. Uh, it, it was amazing. It was, we both said, oh, it's a Sheila. Exactly, exactly. And weren't supposed to happen until, you know, the medieval period, but it's the yes. eighth millennium. <laughs> right, right. The, the, the Sheila's, the display figures are so ancient. Yeah, yeah. And Lipinski Veer being right on the Danube, it makes sense that they're goddesses would have a bit more of a fish aspect to them because exactly, exactly. That, it was, that's it, their livelihood it yeah was a fish culture in fact I, I when i looked at the sea bass i think it was in the in the monterey aquarium i realized it has the face of the of the fish goddess at skivir yeah. And uh, and so those they I've read that there were huge. I think Gibbutas talked about this that there used to be these giant uh, river bass, and that's what the figure is representing. Aha! Uh -huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and that they you know the people were not hunter gatherers but fisher gatherers. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously so. And one more little detail that we might follow up on sometime. The latest uh, DNA work that is interesting um, is con it con uh, in includes the Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon connection, that there was interbreeding. Absolutely. I have Neanderthal blood. I found out on 23andMe. Ah. <laughs> and a little bit more than the average person. Wow. 
I like Neanderthals. <laughs> I just think that they, um, I don't think it was a matter of a battle between Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. No. I think the Neanderthals weren't, um, they were stockier. And I don't think they were quite acclimated to the warming trend that the that that as the ice ice was receding uh -huh, yeah at around 40,000 ah so that's probably you know they made it but eventually uh, there was very little neanderthal dna in the ensuing millennia because i think they just couldn't survive the the heat uh-huh wow and since it's um about 80 degrees in my office. I'm understanding it. I have my window <laughs> open again. <laughs> There's the, the Neanderthal preferences coming out. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so take us to the Neolithic. Okay, to the Neolithic. So first we'll, we'll look at some dancing figures. In Southeast Europe, in Bulgaria, there are figures depicted on pots and pot shirts. Um, in, I, I saw a bunch in the Stara Zagora Museum in Bulgaria, and they date to the early Neolithic. They seem to be doing a magical dance. And in one pot shirt, one arm is raised and one is lowered. And this is a, a magical position. Uh -huh. And um, a lot of work has been done with these um, in Romania, especially um, by Cornelia Magda Lazarevich, um, uh, uh, also earlier writing under the name Magda Mantu. Um, she has in her writings uh, tables of these dancing figures, most of them so interesting. Most of them have a, a triangle, triangle for the top of the body and another triangle for the bottom of the body. Uh -huh. And um, uh, they're figures from the Cucuten Tripolia culture on pot shirts. And again, the arms are raised and the legs form a, a crouching position. Um, all most of the images I'm talking about can be found in, in my book, Sacred Display, and in uh, um, also which is in libraries and also in an online continuation publication Victor and I did um, in Sinoplatonic Papers, which is available online open source. Sinoplatonic. Sinoplatonic papers. Is that something people can go directly to? They can. Sinoplatonic. I'll write it down here. We published this in um, 2013, and it's a, it's a, a, a an online journal series out at the University of Pennsylvania. And there's some really interesting papers in there. And that's where Victor Meyer is located. Uh, yeah, she, he's at, at the unit. Well, he may be retired. I don't know. He's he he's not a person who retires easily. He I um he sends out al almost daily um postings to a uh, uh, listserv. He just is so current. Uh huh. Yeah. He, by the way, is the person who um, discovered in the museums in the Tarm Basin uh, what he thought were Eurasian mummies, uh, European uh, mummies with long noses, red hair, blonde hair. 
he's the one who first introduced them to the world. That's another uh, another podcast for us. There you go. We've got so many. <laughs> I love projects. Okay, so anyway, I think that this Neolith this shamanic dance was an important part of Neolithic religion. Uh-huh. So in Bulgaria today, and and you may remember this, Vicky. Anna Starbanova and Anna Ilieva in Bulgaria, the, the folklorists and dancers yes. um, who were at the conference at the Rila uh, Monastery, uh, they told us that in Bulgaria today, there is still a crooked dance, danced by women in women's initiation r- rituals. And what, what would a crooked dance be but this shamanic dance? Yes. Right, with one hot leg higher than the other. So that would yep. be a crooked dance. That's fascinating. It is, it is. And this, of course, isn't just in um, Europe. Um, in the Machang culture, that this is, this is a little bit later in Western China, and um, about 2300 to 2000 BCE, there are humans who have spread out arms and legs in an M position on, on pots. And this position uh, that these figures take is very similar to that taken by frogs. And frogs represent fertility throughout Eurasia. In fact, um, there's an Egyptian frog goddess, Hecate, who was responsible for childbirth, regeneration, and fertility in, in general. And there are a lot of, of these frog figures that I'll talk about in a minute because I keep getting ahead of myself. So <laughs> there's a really striking pot that looks so much like the Lipensky beer figure. It's it's amazing. It's It too is from the Machang culture. How do you spell that? Miriam. M-A-C-H-A-N-G. Oh, okay. It depicts it depicts a female figure in a display position. And um, the pot was found in the Hexi Corridor, part of the Northern Silk Road, a route from, from Northern China to the Tarim Basin, so East Central Asia. And the woman's hands, again, are positioned in such a way to, to pull apart and expose her genitalia. Also, um, somewhat later are petroglyphs in north central Xinjiang, again, Western China, the Tarim Basin, <laughs> depicting dancing female figures. They're petroglyphs, they date to about 1000 BCE. And these figures too are triangles. The upper body is a an inverted tri- a triangle with the, the apex at the bottom and, and the lower body has the apex at the top. So these triangles are, you know, embedded throughout Eurasia and everywhere. This is really, really early. Um, Frog figures, shall I talk about frog figures? Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so the frog is a symbol of fertility, birth giving, and rain. And when it's on its stomach, it can be, it can take the shape of an M. And um, Maria Gambudis illustrates, and this was earlier illustrated by um, James Mellart, frog figures 
from Achillean dating to about 6300 BCE, Neolithic Achillean, which is in uh, northern Greece, and also one from Hajalar, which is in sort of central to southeastern um, Anatolia. And these figures are just sort of crouching in a frog position, but they have human faces. So this probably is a childbirth position. Oh. Yeah. And um, Vassal Nikolov, the Bulgarian I talked about earlier, discovered the grave of a young woman buried in Bulgaria in this frog position. Mm. Oh, so wow. So it, what I think is that burials are a religious phenomenon, because if you bury a body with care, you are readying it for a spiritual afterlife, which is why I think that the Neanderthal had a spiritual tradition, because they buried bodies with ochre uh -huh. all the way back uh, pre-Upper Paleolithic. Mm. So um, there are frogs depicted in the Indus Valley cultures, and there's a square cylinder seal that Vicky, of course, has seen from the Indus Valley, depicting a woman dancing with her legs in an M position and her arms in a VV position. And in early historic India, in the Rig Veda, the Mandukas, the, the frog gods, are worshipped for their rain-making abilities. And still, um, there are rain-making dances, for example, in Bulgaria, in several Eastern European cultures, they're danced today. Really? Yeah. yeah. I know. And of course, Kali does a shamanic dance on Shiva. She's, he's um, unawakened, and she awakens him by dancing on him. There you go. <laughs> right. So I think also, and this is um, something I've, I've thought about um, since I went to Malta with Star Goody, Susan Gitlin Emmer, and Pat Monahan. Um, we were in the Tarshin Temple in Malta, and there was a colossal statue of a female figure. Vicki, have you seen this? It dates to uh, between 3300 and 2500 BCE. It's huge, but only the upper part, the lower part exists. And people saying, oh, the upper part is missing. I don't think so, because there is an etching on, on one of, of the, the, I think it's in the Nidra complex in on one of, of the, um, the stones that looks exactly like that and it also looks like uh, like a trilithon two legs and the upper body right and so i think that when you walk into these trilithons you're walking into the body of the goddess well and certainly the temples are built in the shape of the goddess in the exactly well, not only are the whole temples in the shape of the goddess, but I think every single trilithon is the shape of the goddess. And you walk through her, and you're entering, entering as you said before, the Holy of Holies, the womb. Yes, Malta is incredible that way for anybody who has not been there to see the Oh, temples. my gosh, yes. If you want to know about the goddess religion, go to Malta. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. And there's no evidence of um, that I know of that that it there were um, settlements. 
my thought is that this was an island um, women went to to study the, how to be a priestess. Oh, it seems oh, like. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, that's a, a pre-theory. <laughs> so it was like a retreat spot or something like that. But also the Menidra Temple, at least, and the, the one next to it, what's it called? Uh, anyway, the two temples are together like twins, and they think birthing might have happened there. I think oh it makes so absolutely absolutely um if you look at the figures in the hypogeum also doing um dreaming yes you know sacred dreaming the the reclining figure yes long before the greek temples long before long before absolutely absolutely so then going into the um early classical age so you know coming down thousands of years, um, there's an image of an Etruscan, Etruscan Medusa in a full crouch displaying her vulva and her legs are forming an M. Uh -huh. And she's crouching between two felines. And there's also the Medusa from the Gorgo pediment, again, um, and she's between felines. And so there's Medusa, there's the uh, Sheelinda Giggs, and the Kiltina and Sheelinda Giggs in this crouching, dancing pose. Uh -huh. And if you think about it, the Sheila has also served an apotropaic function because they're in, on the walls of churches, often sideways, and castles. And I think they're protecting the entrances to these powerful and sacred places. And I think the most powerful and sacred place of all is the vulva of the goddess. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's representing the life continuum, birth, death, and re rebirth, regeneration. Yes. I asked you something, Miriam, about that when you mentioned the Etruscans and, and, and looking in the living goddesses, it was mentioned that when you, the Etruscans, uh, if you can please confirm if this is correct, the Etruscan language is, represents a pre-Indo-European language? No. Or, okay, no, so. it's, um, although they borrowed um, words. Words from pre-Indo-European. Okay, got it. From um, uh, the other Italic societies, such as the Romans, the language is, is not Indo-European. Oh, that's what I said. Okay, so it is a pre-Indo-European language. Okay. It's pre-Indo-European pre in the sense that it's probably Neolithic European rather than um, almost Indo-European, right? And I, um, I used to have to explain that to my classes because pre-Indo-European can mean different things. And, and I don't want to, um, people to think that it was um, related to Indo-European because it wasn't. Right. No, I'm thinking because it was mentioned that and the Cypriotic language yeah, these are the languages because you had pointed out, or, or I should say, um, Maria Gambutsa pointed out that the these languages haven't been deciphered yet. We haven't found our Rosetta Stone for these for this script. We need some serious Rosetta Stones. Yeah, <laughs> that would you be know, so wonderful. We really do. We need one for the Indus Valley, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and we need one for the Danube script. <laughs> Are there, are there any clues uh, with this script when we talk about Etruscan or the Cypriotic or any of that stuff? Or the, I guess Linear A you also mentioned too? Linear A has not been deciphered despite um, people writing that they're sure they've deciphered it. It just it hasn't been. And um, 
an old friend of mine, Elizabeth Barber, wrote um, her doctoral dissertation. She was really early on using a computer, and she put every single inscription that had been um, found so far into the computer. And the answer, because she was trying to decipher linear A, she's a linguist as well as an archaeologist. And she, uh, it, the answer came back, there's not enough material. So that's the big problem, that there isn't enough material to do comparative studies like, um, you know, we can figure out probably some words for some names, because if they're in the right place in the inscription, you can match it to, to Mycenaean, but we can't do more than that. Just for the listener, linear A from the uh, the Cretan civilization. The civilization yeah, this is Minoan, and it's pre it's pre Indo European. It's before the Indo Europeans, the Mycenaeans got to Crete. And then with the Etruscan language, I think they do the same thing, don't they? Sort of compare it the inscriptions. Yeah, and so we can get a lot of. We know what most of the um, the Greco-Roman goddess names are in in Etruscan. Uh huh. Juno is Uno, for example. <laughs> so yeah, we can we can do that. It gives us a, the slightest bit of a of a hint, and the Etruscan culture was so fascinating because it wasn't nearly as um, patriarchal as the Roman or the Greek. Right. Yeah. A lot of scholars call it matriarchal. Well, it could have been in, in our sense of matriarchy. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in, in bringing these all around, uh, one of the things that was really fascinating was, was looking at these uh, civilizations for which we don't have uh, any sort of Rosetta Stone understanding this, uh-huh. the sacred script and the Cypriot uh, and the linear A, do those, uh, is it a mistake to say that those cultures share some cultural distinctions or religious distinctions, particularly in terms of uh, the role of women? They, yeah, I think so. Um, I, at one point, compared the Indus script to the Danube script, and there were almost no comparisons, so they didn't, I, that, which made me very sad, uh, which means that, that, that the, the Indus people didn't get their writing system from old Europe. However, uh, the position of women, the fact that there are no real weapons in the Indus Valley as well as in old Europe, there is a dagger, which um, one archaeologist wrote, a very good one, wrote, couldn't have been used as a weapon because the hilt was wrong. It, it just couldn't have supported it as, as a thrusting weapon. So no weapons. Um, uh, there are more in the, well, God, we, Vicki and I could go on and on and on about the Indus civilization, <laughs> couldn't we? <laughs> well, it sounds like we've got another episode coming up there. <laughs> That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sh- uh, any any additional thoughts before? Well, we I just that? I want to leave people with the idea that the sacred feminine, because of all these artifacts throughout prehistory, would have been in the minds of those who first composed the Danube script. Therefore, the M I think would have meant the sacred dance. I think the V would have meant the sacred vulva. Definitely. There we go. You see the continuity. Thank you. Boy, is this fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Miriam. 
so well, very welcome. Thank you. It's really, really fun. And I love doing it um, with you and Dawn and with Vicki. It's just, um, it's like a really fun conversation. Yeah, it's like old times. <laughs> it's like old times, which we need again. Yeah, like pre-pandemic. <laughs> like pre, exactly. You know, it's it's time to, to do the work. Yeah. We, we have some plans for that. But on that note. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank uh, Miriam Robin Sexter. Let's give you some real applause. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and thank you, of course, to our always band member, uh, Vicki Noble. Thank you, Vicki. Yeah, <laughs> and thank you to the representative from the Amazon tribe contingent, Don <laughs> Sam Alden. Thank you, Don. <laughs> Oh, and thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb, as always, our manifester. Yeah. All right. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. We've been talking about the sacred skip, script. We will be back again soon. Take care, everyone. Take care. And blessed thank be. Thank you. Bye. Blessed, blessed be. be.